This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hi, I'm Amy Farley, Senior Editor at Fast Company. We're taking a look at some of our favorite moments from the 2021 Fast Company Innovation Festival. Here's a conversation about design as a force for good with Jake Barton, designer as well as founder and principal of Local Projects, Felipe Memoria, designer and founding partner of Work & Co., and Dory Tunstall, Dean of Faculty of Design at the Ontario College of Art and Design University. Hi, everyone. I'm Suzanne Labar. I am a senior editor at Fast Company, and I'm thrilled to be here today to host a discussion about how design can be a force of progressive change. Um, I have three illustrious panelists with us here today. Dory Tunstall, who is Dean of Design at OCAD University. Jake Barton, founder of Local Projects, an experienced design studio that has done work for the New York Times, uh, Cooper Hewitt, uh, the September 11th Memorial and, and Museum, and many others. And Felipe Memoria, who is a partner at Work & Co., a digital agency that has clients like IKEA, uh, Aesop, the MTA, and many, many, many more. One other thing that all the panelists have in common is that they are all featured in this beautiful new book <laughs> called Innovation by Design, Creative Ideas that Transform the Way We Live and Work. And this is published by Abrams uh, and it is, it is out now. One sort of major theme in this book is that uh, design can really be a change agent in, in business and society, but it's not a linear path. So we're here today to kind of talk about ways that design has and hasn't been a force of progressive change and, and where we go from here. Dory, I want to start with you because okay. in the book, you talk about a, uh, a design ethos that, that you promote at OCAD called respectful design. And I'm wondering if you can define that for everyone and talk about what it's a response to. How does it, how does it differ from some of the other kind of major design paradigms that people might be familiar with? Well, I think respectful design is an ethos that came out of the body of, of the faculty. And it's really about how, how we value different ways of knowing, different ways of being, value our relationship with um, the environment. So value all of our relations. Like in the indigenous uh, context, they talk about all my relations. Value all our relations and then use our creative methodologies to support that, to enhance that. And it's um, speaking against the fact that in many ways, design has been disrespectful. Um, in terms of this kind of narrative of design as something that came out of Europe in the 1800s, uh, that you know technology brought all this progress. So the records shows that, especially for indigenous, black, and other sort of racialized communities, Design in that modality has been quite harmful. It's, you know, responsible for some of the sustainability issues that we're expressing today. It was in many ways a, a handmaiden with colonization. So we're sort of trying to restore design and restore its uh, ethos so that it's about the respect that we have, the kind of designer we want to be, and the kind of change we want to bring in the world by valuing, again, in the indigenous sense, all our relations. And can you talk through some specific ways that design has failed to be respectful? Well, we constantly hear uh, discussions about the appropriation and misappropriation of indigenous motifs. Uh, so again, it feels like every other week there's some 
clothing company, for example, that's being accused of taking an indigenous motif, stealing it. Um, a lot of times it may be a sacred symbol within the community. And so there's a <laughs> PR uproar that happens. They apologize. But again, it happens frequently. So we're still not learning that lesson. Um, one of the things I always talk about is like the invention of the cotton gin um, in the 1700s and how that one invention, efficiency invention, um, led to <laughs> us going from, well, at the end of slavery in 1850, we had 3 million enslaved Africans because that machine made it much more efficient for uh, cotton to be grown. And again, cotton was like three-fourths of the economy of the United States at the time and fed the Industrial Revolution. So all these things that we think of like design being such a wonderful thing, invention being such a wonderful thing, efficiency being such a wonderful thing, when we begin to look at the record of design that Again, sometimes it's been just as harmful as it's been helpful to very specific communities. And how we recognize that and make amends for that is, is the great work that design has to do. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. How do you go from that legacy, which is so entrenched, to you know, moving forward and, and thinking about how we do design more inclusive and equitable and progressive future? Well, I think um, diversifying design is really important for that. I, you know, AIGA does the survey every year and we're still, design as a field is still majority white and it's still majority male in many cases, although there are certain disciplines where that's shifted. So having diverse people within design broadens the notion of what design is and what it could do and the cultural connections that it draws from. Uh, that's the first step and, I, and again, um, in the wake of, of last year's um, Black Lives Matter, that there's a lot of efforts um, that many cor corporations and firms are taking to address that. Like it's been quite amazing to see. Um, but having that diversity in-house, so to speak, becomes really important because then you have people who can say, well, the impact of this decision on my community or community that I'm adjacent to will be negative. Can we make a different decision? Can we have a different outcome? Can we have a, uh, can we do something that actually is more life affirming um, that instead of something harmful? So having that diversity in house becomes the important way to bring new decisions, new ideals and new innovations of how design can, again, operate from this sense of respect for everyone. Jake, I want to turn to you for a second because your your firm really specializes in designing very sort of sensitive spaces. And an example cited in the book is the September 11th uh, memorial, where you actually mm -hmm. arranged the names of those who had been killed by association, so brothers with brothers, colleagues with colleagues, instead of alphabetically. I'm curious how you approach a project like that with respect and humility but ultimately make decisions that, you know, might not make everybody happy. Yeah, it's a great uh, point. And I really loved what Doria was saying in terms of respectful design. I think when we build projects like the 9-11 Memorial Museum or like our latest project, Greenwood Rising, about the Tulsa race uh, massacre, the centennial event, it's always a point of incredible contested friction. Right. And so the, the idea of respect is critical, but we have to acknowledge that in some ways the role of these institutions is, yes, to memorialize, 
yes, to tell stories, but also in some ways to be a lightning rod for conflict, right? We're a democratic society, uh, very, very diverse, very multicultural, tons and tons of different points of view. And in that project for the 9-11 Memorial Museum, we recognize, as you said, we're just not going to make something that will make everyone happy because this was an incredibly difficult, challenging and, and traumatizing event. And in a lot of ways, the procedure of designing the memorial and ultimately the museum was its own form of, of not therapy, but of, of collective counseling to grapple with the meaning and the reckoning of what 9-11 meant for us then and what means for the future. So in the case of the memorial, we decided to come up with something that didn't look at it like a war memorial in terms of chronology, but also didn't look at it like a straight uh, terrorism victimization memorial where everything was scattered randomly, which is how Michael Arad, the architect had originally imagined it. Instead, we designed an algorithm that could locate each name in a seemingly random sequence, except for the fact that through uh, the databases that the Memorial Foundation had acquired, we were able to put brothers next to brothers. Sometimes we put strangers next to strangers, knowing that the two people uh, whose names are on the memorial actually perished together as witnessed by other people who made it out alive. And so I think that's a level of exactly what Dory's talking about. It's not something that you know, let's be honest, design is not the cure-all for all of society's ills and isn't able to fully negotiate between parties that have incredibly divergent, if not directly conflicting points of views. On the other hand, the ability to both, A, design something that's respectful to all parties, but also that B, and this is a lot of our work, that tries to bring those parties together, that tries to create some form and I think trying to resolve differences is frankly overambitious in this moment of time. I'll settle for just respectful awareness. And even in the case of a project we did in Australia, which I can talk about, a commitment to work together and to walk together as a society moving forward. And that feels to me like what we want to do together. Again, nobody has the solutions right now, but just the commitment to being together and walking together is what we try to imbue into all of our projects. Jake, I would love for you to talk about the project in Australia. This is the Hyde Park Barracks. So what were the key design challenges there and how did you, how did you work through addressing them? For Sydney Hyde Park Barracks uh, Museum, it's, a, it's an interesting project in that it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And in some ways, it's a little bit equivalent to America's Ellis Island in that uh, it was the first place where the convicts who were sent to Australia were actually processed and eventually housed. So it has a very, very dark history, uh, a very challenging history. And also, frankly, Australia, just literally as a society or country, is a little bit of ahead of America, I would imagine, in terms of how they're thinking about issues with Aboriginals in that case, in that we have an active land acknowledgement statement that we open every presentation in the museum itself with, and that we also bring to the foreground through years of process, of different workshops, of different intercouncil connections uh, and storytelling meetings, tell the story of the aboriginals, including many dark chapters, including some very horrendous massacres that occurred episodically and spasmodically throughout the history of Australia. 
And at the end of the experience, we don't end it with, a, 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 again, a sort of triumphant moment of unity. We actually end it with a series of individual uh, figures in contemporary history talking about what Australian history means to them. And the one that always gets me is an Aboriginal elder who talks about how important and frankly unexpected it is to go into this central building from Australia's founding and to find histories and to find the, the struggles within these genocidal histories that then allow him to have some faith. Again, and it's exactly the phrases that he uses. He says, you know, this is not a place to resolve our differences, but this is a place to commit to walking together to tell our collective stories into the future. And that, again, is this amazing moment of acknowledgement going from exactly the types of, of historic challenges um, and imbalances that we've had uh, through colonization and so many other factors to a moment of recognition. And then again, this commitment to walking forward into the future, eyes open and with a sense of, of moving into what we call the journey towards reconciliation. And your work on uh, Greenwood Rising similarly did not sort of wrap up history in a, in a tidy bow. Uh, yes. But there was there was some pushback and, and some people who thought that the money that was spent on the project should have yes. gone toward reparations. I'm curious how you navigated that conversation. That's the first part of my question. And the second part is, why is it important for designers specifically to be having these conversations? It's such a great question. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think in terms of, of the question around reparations, Greenwood Rising uh, fully acknowledges and wants to have reparations for all members of, of Greenwood. The biggest question is how big those reparations are and where they come from. So historically speaking, the state of Oklahoma did this amazing um, investigation and in the 90s essentially asserted, yes, the state owes you reparations. They should be doled out in these five different ways. Uh, and the challenging thing for a, a history museum like Greenwood Rising is, you know, that's a generation and a half ago. Right. The state has acknowledged that it should have been paying out reparations a, a generation and a half ago. So the question is, what is it that will move a state towards paying the dues that they've already acknowledged that they owe? And I think from our standpoint, there's so many different levers to pull, including uh, the there was a lawsuit that was filed by members of Greenwood, as you're as you're describing. And then there's social pressures. But as storytellers, we also feel like it's critical to bear witness to this centennial massacre event and to essentially tell the story of what happened in Greenwood so that the history can never be buried again. The, the head of the museum told this amazing story to me at the kickoff. He said that he wasn't from Tulsa, but had moved there because he had gone to historically black college. He'd studied a whole semester on the Tulsa race massacre. He moves to Greenwood. He's walking around the neighborhood on the first day. Uh, another person stops him and says, oh, hey, are you from around here? He's like, no, I just moved here. He's like, but I'm, I'm trying to find the different markings uh, from the race massacre uh, back in 1921. And the person who had stopped him on the street was actually a member of the Greenwood community and said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what's the race massacre? And what the eventual executive director of the museum recognized was, oh my gosh, this entire history had been buried by an entire generation of people so that the subsequent generation literally knew nothing about it. 
And in our minds, particularly as someone who, who focuses on, on museums, on memorials, there's all of these horrible histories on, on genocide uh, and all of these forms of Holocaust. And to me, the willful forgetting of stories, of narrative, of history, of wrongs that are done is another form of Holocaust that's equally as important to undermine. You have to tell the full truth. And if you don't gather, in particular in public, that's why I think museums and memorials are so complicated but so necessary. You don't gather people in public to witness a collective understanding of history. How can you even think about reconciliation? Right. If you don't agree on what happened on this very soil, how can then you even talk about making amends or about the harm that was done, much less about moving forward? And America, frankly, has an amazing cyclical ability to will itself into forgetting the things that it's done in the past, all under the guise of moving forward and moving on. And so I think this moment in time, as Dory's been talking about, is specifically about collective public witness with the aim of moving forward. Felipe, I want to turn to you for a moment because you do very different work. Uh, and, you know, you're often working on these digital experiences that that impact huge numbers of people. Uh, but similar to the, to the work that Jake is doing, there are many, many different stakeholders involved and a, a project that is in the book is your work on the New York City subway map, which you redesigned to show real-time updates. And anyone who lives in New York or has spent time in New York knows how absolutely necessary this update was. But I'm curious, how do you resolve all of the different, you know, the sort of competing interests that you're dealing with on a project like this? How do you make something that works for everyone or doesn't? So I think that's a question we try to answer in pretty much every project, to be honest, um, right? Like you have to balance like the needs of our clients and the needs of users and all types of, you know, customers and users that are going to be using the tools to make. I think what's different about the subway map is that it's, you know, by far, I think the product that I worked on that had the more diverse and, and different and, and, you know, types of, of needs and and backgrounds and it's for everybody really right even when we did work for apple it's still like a brand that is more expensive right and it's like really like amazing at so many levels but it's not really so democratic as democratic as as the subway is like you know everybody pretty much uses the the subway system in new york so that was fascinating for us i think partnering with them and learning from them was very important. Pretty much in every project, we try to be as close as possible to our clients because they know more about their businesses uh, than, than we do, obviously. And, and they had a lot of information already, a lot of experience, obviously, in all the challenges that they have. And, uh, and we try to you know, do the best we could to not only learn from them, but also ask users and test it. And our team was very diverse. And, you know, the map has has links for feedback. We also heard a lot on on the nicest place on the internet, Twitter. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of feedback too. I hope, you know, thankfully most of it was very positive. Uh, but you hear, you know, you hear a lot and you get a lot of information. I, I think it was fascinating. Like we 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 were always talking about those specific, you know, uh needs and things that we had to worry about on the map project that 
you wouldn't, I think, think, uh, you know, if you were not working with government in the first meetings, right? So even the fact, for example, that it's not an app, it's on the web, shows something, sends a message. It's, it's the, the first thing that people get a little confused about, you know, when I talk about the project, they're like, oh, how can I download the app? And I'm like, well, it's not an app. Because the app would make it uh, not as democratic. The web is a much more democratic place. Every phone can open a website and use the map we did, right? And, and for the MTA, it would be a much bigger investment to, to have an application and then have to have the application for all types of phones and, and devices, you know. And, and so, so the web is a much more democratic place. There's other features that we thought about that I, that I really love. And most people don't know. I think I never talked about it. So... You know, we even thought about, for example, people that, you know, wouldn't have necessarily a good connection or Wi-Fi uh, when they're uh, walking to the trains. So if you load the map uh, once, the map is not going to reload uh, unless it kind of realizes that you have a good connection. You just keep that version of the map. You keep the map. You can basically use it without actually using any of your, your data, right? So so that's pretty interesting. Like the the idea as well of, highlighting and making a sort of a version of the map for you know the stations with ramps and elevators was another i think big win for us it's a big thing that they talked about since the very first meeting so to me it was fascinating to work with them and from the beginning from the very first meeting they were putting those questions up front and and kind of educating us i'm like look this is this is new york and and those are the things that we have to worry about those are the struggles and those are the things you guys have to keep in mind we can't do like a, a fancy product that is going to work just for a segment of society it has to work for everybody uh to the best of our ability obviously you can continue to work on those things forever to get you know to make them better that's how digital works in general digital products and and the product is far from being perfect but but i think it's a good first step and the other thing that I think, you know, just to, to talk a little bit about the project for those who don't know uh, at, core, at the core what it does, and I think it's one of the most important things too, uh, as far as communicating really well uh, what's going on. So basically, for, for, for everybody watching that is not familiar with the New York subway system, it's 24-7, right? It's the city that never sleeps. It's 24-7. And of course, it's a gigantic, it's the most complex uh, system in the world, and they need to give maintenance, they, they need to fix trains, they need to upgrade stations, they need to do all sorts of things, right? Obviously, but it's working 24 seven. So what are the times that they sort of schedule to do that work? Not at peak times, right? Not at rush hour. So it has to be late at night or on the weekends, right? And everybody that has been to New York has experienced what that means. What that means is that because the posters that they have around the, the stations basically communicating the maps that they have that are printed that communicate how the system is, they are not valid anymore when those changes are being made. They have to reroute trains, right? So, so by definition, like uh, I think the, the printed medium could never actually solve that problem. And the workaround, which is the best that they could do, was actually to print some posters and put on the stations to communicate what's going on, basically saying like, look, this is not what the map is showing today because there's change of service because we have to fix the trains, right? We have to fix the stations. And everybody that has been in New York uh, and tried to get the subway on, on the weekends or at night, they, they struggle to understand that information. It's very complicated. You know, they have the content, they know what's going on, but you have to read a poster and really know the names of the stations and if you don't speak English very well, it's harder. It's harder to understand 
they also say on the on the trains what's going on uh, and it's very hard to understand um, for for all sorts of backgrounds right like the melting pot in New York is so the beauty about the map and the most significant thing we did was actually to get all that content all that information that they had already of the changes and show it visually right so back in the day this could not be done with a printed medium because you would have to have designers on staff redesigning the map on a daily basis and, and printing the map on a daily basis and actually putting them in all the stations and all the trains. It just doesn't work. It can't do that, right? So the, the beauty of the solution is that we designed something that sort of changes live and always shows the current status of the system. So it's much more democratic way to actually uh, get the information because you don't need to know how to read. You don't need to understand English at all. You just look at the image and the map is accurate. That's what it is. And the difficult part of the project was actually the, the technology uh, behind it, which is basically how can you make sure that regardless of what happens in the spaghetti you know, situation, looks polished and looks professionally designed and clear and communicates, right? So it can't be like the straight lines everywhere. It has to look like this is the final thing. And I think that's one of the most powerful things we did from a communication standpoint. You know, it's extremely inclusive. Like you can just look at it and you get it. And you don't need to worry about listening or understanding what they're saying or understanding the posters and everything, right? So, and I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. You can imagine this eventually changing for the entire wayfinding system and the entire wayfinding actually being live, you know? So, uh, so it's always really saying if the A train is coming this way, you see that it's the A train. I'm not saying that it's the E train, but actually it's the A train. You know what I mean? Like, so... So I think that was a very powerful thing. And, and one of the, the main qualities of the project is, is making all that information really accessible. This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. That project and so many of your projects are really about uh, reaching an audience at scale, uh, which is amazing to the extent that you are able to really affect change at scale. But there's also a lot of responsibility that comes with that. So I wonder if you have a process in place for dealing with potential unintended consequences, you know, not necessarily on this project, but just sort of generally speaking. Yeah, I actually, I think your question is, uh, is fascinating because I think it actually relates to to the state of, of digital design right now, you know? Um, it's a very new discipline and, you know, it has been evolving. And I think we're in a bigger stage than we've ever been as designers. Uh, the, the importance of design and the investments in design, I think it became something that, that basically every company today uh, has to invest on to be competitive and, and, and and to have a good products, right? And um, again, I think I think this question is it's in this context because what happened, what has been happening historically, is that digital products have been getting better and better, but to a point that now they are almost too good. So you know, every technology comes with good things and potentially bad things, right? And I think we're kind of in the middle of the road. I mean, it's still a very new discipline, and, and I think we're kind of in the middle of the road in a sense that. We kind of designed too well some of the devices and, and services we use. And there were consequences for that, right? So we see 
you know, a lot of kids today completely, you know, addicted to screens. We are all kind of addicted to screens pretty much like to those phones that are so powerful. And, and, but at the same time, there's such great tools, right? They are tools that really enhance our lives. They're fundamental to the way we live today. They, they made our lives so much better in so many levels, but at the same time, there is this trap. So I think that we are inserted in this context that the designers in general is, which is we're learning from what happened, right? And there's a lot of learnings that we're starting to sort of, you know, get to to be more, you know, have more clarity around uh, of things that we can do better, that have to get better. And I think it's that we can see that not only, you know, at Working Co, but also our clients are in the same space, in the same place. You know, we can see that as far as I can tell, being honest, like they have the best of intentions to do the, the, be the right thing and to do great digital products and not to sort of use dark patterns or sort of, you know, trick the user in, in all sorts of ways. I think things, in my opinion, I think things just came to be the way they are because that's how it works in design historically. Design is basically trial and error and tinkering for years and years and years until you get to something that, that actually works. So I think our process is, you know, we try as much as we can to avoid uh, you know, uh, the, the sort of bad things that can happen with whatever we do, right? So we like to believe we're very competent, we're very experienced, we've seen a lot. I think it's one of the things that I love about having an agency is actually work with different clients and learn from different industries and different backgrounds and meet different people and, and you can connect those dots. So we have some experience on trying to avoid things that we think can be can go to a route that we're not uh, we don't think it's good, right, uh, for the users in particular, and also for the businesses because those things are connected. So you try to do the best you can, which is a liar of your experience. We have a diverse set of you know people working in, in the project, listening to users as much as you can, getting uh, your hand in, in, in as much research as you can, you know, iterating, trying, testing again, iterating, trying. But inevitably, I think we're not you know in a place of the discipline historically that we are done and. It's mature enough for us to be bulletproof about everything. It's just not. It's never going to be perfect. By the way, design is never perfect by definition. You can always make anything better, right? So I think, I think we're in a in a in an exciting time, in my opinion, because all those issues that were created by the, the digital products that we've been using are very clear, you know. And and we were talking a lot about them. You know, Jake was talking about like how that conversation has to happen in other contexts. I think that conversation is happening a lot. And, and just out of curiosity, for example, one thing that I thought was fascinating, we every year ask uh, our working call team, our folks, which is 420 people today, what they want to work on. And, and in past years, they would say, well, I want to work on, on, on luxury and, uh, you know, automotive uh, projects. And this year it changed completely. They want to work on healthcare. They want to work on education. They want to work on things associated to the environment, you know. Um, and we see our clients also talking about that, even, you know, in the financial services space, to be honest, like a lot of our clients have their hearts in the right place. So I think, you know, everybody's getting more sort of mature about everything and, and getting more awareness about sort of the state of affairs of digital products and, and of design as a discipline. And I think that's how you start, right? That's how you start is like have, having more knowledge and, and sort of asking more questions, asking the right questions, worrying about things, making sure you ask as many people as possible, making sure you you listen uh, what users want to say and how they're using your products. And you try to do the best you can. But again, 
you're never going to get it 100% right. You have to keep going and keep going and keep making it better. I want to ask a similar question to you, Dory and Jake. How do you measure the you know, the impact of a design? Like, how do you know if a design is doing good or not? Because to Felipe's point, there are, you know, a lot of examples of a design that seems on at face value to be really great. And then it turns out to either not live up to the hype or, or actively do harm. So how, how do you gauge that when you're sort of assessing your own work or, or other people's work? For me, when I work with students, I always talk about like the most challenging thing in your design is figuring out who's the most vulnerable. And then if your design is not enhancing, empowering, <laughs> giving agency to who's the most vulnerable of your potential users or a wider sense of stakeholders, then you have some redesigning that you need to do. You need to do another iteration of your thinking. Um, because all those, you know, like, when design works and it works well, we don't worry about it, right? It's only when it's done something harmful. And this is, again, this is the listing. Um, this, and it's some, a lot of times it's the unintended consequences, as you've talked about before. So figuring out who's the most vulnerable in that scenario and then how you make sure that your design is not contributing to their greater vulnerability, whether that's economic, cultural, social, that's the way in which we make sure that we're improving design to make it better. And again, we do a lot of analysis around, uh, people are very vocal <laughs> uh, in terms of like the ways in which uh, designs have been harmful to them. So really listening to them, even if you don't think that they're necessarily like who your target audience is that you're trying to reach, that listening to those who feel vulnerable in the power of design, the power of what you're creating, um, and doing the iteration to address that gap in your thinking, in your imagination, um, is how we improve design and, and make sure that it works for, again, like all our relations, make sure that it works for everyone. Yeah, I think that's right. Just to echo what Dory says, and, and similar to what Felipe was saying, whether it is a culture client or an entertainment client, um, we are always looking at our audience and at our goals. We're thinking about what it is that we're trying to achieve. And even before you get to the sort of what, what are we going to make, that why question is so incredibly important to do exactly what Dory is saying, which is to look into the edges, look into the extreme cases, look into the vulnerable, look into those who may not have either historically or in the present had a voice in terms of considering the impact of what you're creating. So, for example, we just opened Planet Word, which is a new museum of language with 10-year-olds and older in Washington, D.C., and it's fun. It's like designed to be everything that you would want out of uh, a space that celebrates the joy of what you can do with words, whether it's like we have a karaoke room that teaches you all about songwriting. Uh, we have an amazing uh, joke room where you tell jokes competitively and try and make each other laugh, et cetera, et cetera. But latent and built into there is a deep, expressed, process that we went through to diversify all of the voices in terms of the design process, in terms of the audience process, in terms of choosing different authors, in terms of choosing different languages, and in terms of opening a platform for self-representation for all of these different people who are speaking to their own cultures, uh, again, with a sense of true joy and a gift that's offered to every member who walks through there. But actually, I overheard someone saying uh, to someone else at the opening 
uh, they were sort of commenting to African-American women. They were like, oh, you know, I used to have this book in my childhood bedroom when I was a kid, but like it was never in any of the official libraries. Right. And then the other one was like, oh, yeah, you know, kind of feels like when you look at this stuff, I hadn't thought about it, but this is like this is like the library as it should be. Right. And that sort of seamlessness of inclusivity where you're not hitting people over the head so they reject it and feel like something's being foisted. But instead, again, it's a true open and honest celebration of all of these different voices that come together is a way to really, I think, take some of the, the challenges that we're in today and allow ourselves to have this sense of positive recognition of all of these different voices that come together. I mean, as Felipe said, you know, Twitter is a, just like a scalding, challenging, impossible place. But, you know, the real world is not necessarily like Twitter. And if we, and this is, I think, where design is really, really, really important, whether it's the stuff I do or Dory does or, or Felipe, but we have the chance to essentially design affordances, design systems, to design objects that have either a narrative or an implied usage inside of them. And that mechanism, if it's done with sensitivity and mindfulness, can be expressly a moment for progressive change. And that's really, really powerful, right? Whether it's storytelling or whether it's tool making, uh, whether it's form making, whether it's the stories we tell about the designs that we're creating, we're, we're making something that has not just a built-in language in it, but that is used in a certain way for specific purposes. So I loved Felipe's observation that his uh, incredible staff of, of tool makers and designers are interested in pointing their talents in ways in which, uh, in, or products and, and companies and projects that can make this progressive change. Because honestly, I think that intention is where all of this starts. And if you're not, if you're not acknowledging and not inspiring that level of motivation to again point your talents in certain ways and have levels of sensitivity in terms of what you're making, it's just not going to happen. So that mindfulness, I think, is really, really important. And Jake, something I, I, I've experienced and felt during this project too that I think was sort of remarkable and, and special to me is that I kind of realized how society is the ultimate client. You know, the experience of working on the map uh, for the city, for the city that I, I live in and that so many people are going to use that are, you know, it's going to have a real impact. And, and we launched it during, you know, COVID. So even more important uh, at that time it really kind of changed me as a designer. And I think that that sort of spirit uh, sort of was felt and that that sort of was felt by, by not only the team that worked on the project, but the entire company. It, re it really like is remarkable. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was obsessed about it for a, a year and a half. They were working on it. I, that's the only thing I could think about, you know, because it is so powerful, right? So it's like, I think, uh, you know, I keep asking myself, what is the next thing that I can do that, can have that sort of impact is really rewarding, uh, you know, to to work on things like that. And uh, anyway, so I think I'll, I'll keep following that forever. Like it's 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 a completely different game, and it's fascinating. It's so exciting. You know, Dory, one thing that you brought up earlier that I'm hoping you can touch on a little bit more is who is actually doing the design work. And um, I know that at OCAD, you have an initiative for elevating Black designers. <laughs> how do you how do you make it systemic change? You know, let's say you move on to your next professional endeavor. How do you ensure that that change stays and 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 is just a part of of the culture at OCAD and and more broadly? 
that to me has been the most amazing thing about my experience. So we have a Black Youth Design Initiative, and there are certain programs that are tied to that. So we have uh, Black Reach, which is uh, for uh, eight to twelve year olds, and it's actually introducing them to design. And the way that lives is, and it lives in two ways, right? So there, it lives in the in the students themselves who are actually volunteering at different youth organizations to teach people design. Because uh, for the eight to 12 year old, that's like the age in which, um, let's say in certain communities, you're discouraged from drawing because they're afraid you're gonna become a starving artist. And so we wanted to reach that group to show them, um, again, a lots of professional designers. So we did these video um, short interviews with uh, different professional designers, um, just to sort of say, like, you know, them telling stories. I used to draw when I was a kid, and now I'm, you know, like, we interviewed uh, Director X, Julie and Christian Lutz. So it's like, and now I make music videos and movies, and that all started from me drawing. So, um, so that lives actually in our long-term planning around student recruiting. So we get lots of support from our admissions team in terms of, like, again, planting that seed of, like, in eight years, these are going to be the next generation of students coming into OCAD University. From our entrepreneurship, we have an entrepreneurship program. And this one's a beautiful cycle where we've um, received monies to place Black students into Black businesses. And this has been really important with COVID because a lot of our Black businesses need to go digital and they weren't before. So we were able to place Black students to help them go digital and build their businesses which then builds again that sort of, and that's part of our Center for Emerging Artists and Designers. So all the things that we're doing around our Black Youth Design Initiative are actually built into the institutional structures. We prioritize, so we prioritize for Indigenous and Black students, we prioritize for Indigenous and Black businesses. Just the past semester, um, in my advertising class that I taught third year, we supported 11 Black and nine Indigenous small businesses. Uh, to help build a digital brand strategy because, again, they all had to pivot to digital. In the ways in which we build all of our values, right, because they're values, you can build them to every part of our infrastructure. We can build it into how we do recruiting. We can build it into how we do professionalization. We can build it into our curriculum. And so whenever I do leave <laughs> uh, OCAD University, um, these ideas, right, these principles about how we be in the world, they remain because they're embedded in our systems and they're embedded in every single person who now comes to OCAD because they believe in these values, they believe in what it is that we're doing. And our students uh, have reset their expectations. <laughs> it's like, you know, Felipe saying, it's like, my expectations have been shifted. They want to, how is my skills going to make the world a better place for specific communities, um, for specific communities that design may not um, engage with, or again, design has been harmful. So we're, we're part of the reparations, right? Of how design can repair relationships with it. So all of this work is really, it's about, if there are a set of values, you build them into every single aspect of your institution. And that's when it's not about the individual. People come to that institution because of those values and they continue uh, the good work that's being done. And then again, in this uh, virtuous cycle, right, they then attract more people who want to do this kind of work. And that's, we've been, you know, we've had uh, 
two indigenous and one black cluster higher, where we've gone from zero to five black faculty in design and zero to seven indigenous faculty. And they all came because they wanted to be a part of this institutional change. And, and they are the next generation of making that institutional change deeply, deeply embedded into everything that we do from teaching to research to community outreach and engagement and all of the systems support that work. Where do you see design affecting the most change in the next 10 years or so? It, it has to be climate. It has to be climate crises, uh, catastrophe, wherever we are right now. And, and the way I think of it is, is I'm really interested in mycelium ways of thinking, mycelium networks. And so reframing our understanding of like design's impact in the sense of like how like mycelium, its nurturance, how it feeds all into these systems, changing our understanding of that from like, let's say technology as this master slave relationship, which is kind of built into a ghostery, go do this, to one where we're all networked together, I think is going to be super powerful and super necessary for survival, right? For survival of not just our species, but all species. Thank you to our panelists for being here today. You were amazing. Uh, if you want to learn more about the book, you can go to abrams.com or read an excerpt on fastcompany.com. You can also buy it at uh, bookshop.org or any bookstore online. Uh, thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. You guys were awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.